we think the ocean is big enough to handle them on his own and that we can just disregard our responsibility for it. With oceans, again, because of this long tradition of thinking that the ocean was too big to fail, that the ocean was too big to like take care of itself. But it also connects back to my desire for exploration, right? Because the ocean is not transparent to light. It doesn't transmit light very well, but it is transparent to sound. Welcome back to the Ocean Embassy. Um, I hope you excuse the background noise. I'm unfortunately recording this outside. In the last episode, I promised you the next episode would be all about ocean legislations, but things were moved around a bit, so that will actually come next time. Instead, today you will hear from Melania Guerra, a super inspirational and inspiring woman. She is from Costa Rica with an American background and originally studied mechanical engineering in Costa Rica. Afterwards, she did a PhD in oceanography at Scripps in Southern California, interned at NASA, and worked at several research institutes focusing especially on ocean acoustics before she transitioned into public policy and science diplomacy, working at the United Nations for a year, and after that getting another master's degree in public policy. Melania is, since this year, working as the director of science strategy at Planet in Berlin, which is where I finally met her in person. What I love very much about this conversation with Melania, unlike my previous episodes, is that we really kind of drift through a lot of common interests and topics. And to me, she really embodies what I think about when I envision an interdisciplinary ocean expert. I hope you enjoy this conversation and excuse our drifting off topic here and there. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Good to see you again. You too. I'm glad we finally we finally I met it. <laughs> this was so difficult. <laughs> these these episodes have been cursed. I had oh, the no. same I had the same situation with um the previous recording that I did with um with Anne and Blanca and Alicia. Uh -huh. Because um, with, with Alicia and Anne, I tried three times to do the recording. Um, <sighs> first, twice we had to cancel last minute. And then Anne was locked out of her apartment, so she couldn't join. Then when she finally could join, the electricity went out in Paris. And then she was gone, <laughs> and it was it was cursed. <laughs> That's terrible. But did you record everybody? Because there was so many guests on that episode. Yeah, no, we split it up. We I did uh, the... Okay. First a recording with uh, three of them, with Blanca, Shirley, and um, Anna. And then I did the second mm -hmm. recording with Anne and, and Alicia. Ah, yeah, okay. otherwise it would have been Yeah, impossible. yeah. I was wondering <laughs> how you had managed to do. That's That sounds very yeah. complicated. Yeah, but that's also why there was no episode for so long. Because um, yeah. there were like two or three weeks in between we, where we initially wanted to record and then eventually finally managed to record. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's um, it was fun. <laughs> it was really exciting. Cool. But it was a Do lot you... of editing. <laughs> I imagine. I can't yeah. imagine. Um, and yeah, so I usually start with the same question for everyone. Um, so we can, Ooh, we can start with I that. Wish, <laughs> I wish I knew which one. To <laughs> it's also a test to figure out who has listened to my art. <laughs> oops. Um, oops. Yeah, no, um, the question is, what's your ocean story? Can you take us on a little journey and explain to us um, how you got into the ocean profession that you eventually followed, follow up, followed up on? I love that question. Um, I've never called it my ocean story, but my, my story is that I grew up really loving exploration. I remember when I was five and I received a book from my grandfather, um, and it was the story of Heinrich Lehmann, who was the archaeologist that discovered Troy. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the first time that I knew that there were people that had jobs that didn't have to sit in an office from nine to five, like my parents, right? And I started looking for other examples of people who had that kind of adventurous life and making discoveries and making it, you know, exploration and travels. And I ran into astronauts and I ran into Jacques Cousteau. 
And so I, I didn't know that all of them were connected by science, but I knew that I wanted to have a life like that. Um, and initially I thought that was going to be space. So I started thinking that I wanted to be an astronaut and I uh, worked at NASA after undergrad. And while being um, there at Johnson Space Center, I met an astronaut who's an oceanographer. And she talked to me again about the many parallels between doing field work on ships and going um, on sea vent adventures and how that had prepared her to be really good at working in confined spaces and remote environments um, and teamwork with really heavy and uh, expensive equipment. And, and that's when I decided to just transition and do grad school in oceanography. Okay. And maybe um, important information, I guess, also is that you grew up in Costa Rica. Yes, that's where. <laughs> did you grow up close to the ocean or more in the mountains? I didn't. I grew up in the, the capital, which is San Jose, in the very center of the, of the country. And so it's about, I think the, the quickest you can be on the ocean is about two hours um, and, and we were never going to the beaches too often. We would go like once or twice a year. Uh, but my dad is from the Punta Arenas province, which is in the, in the Pacific, in the central Pacific. So, uh, he would tell me stories of growing up by the ocean. And on the other side of my family, my mom's side, my great grandfather, who I got to meet, um, was, uh, in the Navy. Um, he was American and he, had been a part of the the people that were going to Panama to go build the Panama Canal uh, in the early 1900s, and and on his way down to Panama, he they stopped to resupply in Costa Rica, and he met my great grandmother on the boardwalk there. So I have always felt that both sides of my family had connections to to the ocean, and in fact, I've always wanted to know more about my great grandfather's history and how he went on ships. He was a veteran of World War One, And so I've always wanted to find more information about his his voyages at sea and how they connect to the, the cruises that I eventually did for research. And did you find out or is it still an ongoing? It's still I, I've been I've been trying to interview my grandma because she's the last one of of his kids. Mm -hmm. And And I've been trying to interview her every now and then. It's hard at this point. I don't know how much of what she tells me is true and how much is not. <laughs> so I have to do some digging. But I, I think there's, I've always thought there's there's a book in the making in there that I'm going to mm -hmm. find some some sources of information at some point that, that maybe there's like a cool story to tell mm -hmm. there. Yeah, grandparents' stories are um, epic sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> exactly. It's interesting how with growing memory I guess uh, or now I can I can also recognize the same stories when my grandma tells them again and again like from World War II when she was a, a little child um, and um, sometimes it's funny how they always change a little bit in detail but um, and it's like okay so which which version is true but the bottom line of course um, remains the same and I always think I should record her or something when we talk about it yeah. because Yeah, yeah. Dur during the pandemic, I started recording her uh, just phone calls that I would have of her mm. because I, you know, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, you never, you didn't know if you're going to see these people again mm -hmm. or not. So, so I have some some calls that are recorded, and it's really funny to interview her mm -hmm. um, on her dad's life. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow, that's that's amazing. Um, following up on that, you already mentioned it, that you actually initially didn't study oceanography or didn't study something in the marine space, but you studied mechanical engineering, right, in your undergrad. Could you share what initially drove you to that and then motivated, inspired you to study oceanography? Um, you already uh, took my question <laughs> and, and, and replied, but maybe you can go more into, into depth and detail. Yeah, so I, I think it connects back to that desire of exploration and, and realizing that all of these extreme environments are unsuitable for people and that we need technology to access them and to explore them and, and understand them. So, um, mm -hmm. so I really wanted to understand the thing they had in common. I didn't want to close any doors. I didn't want to close the door on exploring the poles or the ocean or the space. Um, so I decided to study the thing that they had at the intersection, and that was engineering. And, and it was really interesting because in Costa Rica at the time, we were getting trained on a lot of um, energy, for example, hydroelectric. Costa Rica has 
a lot of renewable energy. So we were getting trained on that and we, we were getting trained on microprocessors because Intel had just arrived. So everybody in my class wanted to work for Intel. Um, and they couldn't understand why I was dreaming of rockets and submarines, right? So they, they didn't understand the connection. Um, but I, I always felt very strongly that, that there was a connection between these extreme environments and engineering. And, mm-hmm. and I got lucky that after finishing, right, right like the month after I finished uh, and graduated from my undergrad, I was accepted by um, a Costa Rican who had become American and joined the NASA astronaut corps. Um, and he had flown seven times to space on the space shuttle. So I was accepted by, by his lab to go work for him at Johnson Space Center and do a one year long internship. So, so it was during that year that I got to see how, you know, first world science works and, and how a group of like super motivated and passionate people about a field can bring different um, disciplines together and, and work in really interdisciplinary environments. And so that was a, a one-year experience that I, I cherished a lot. And um, I got to meet Megan MacArthur, who was this oceanographer slash astronaut. And uh, she talked to me about Scripps, uh, which is the school that she had attended, where she had studied. And um, I met several faculty through her, and they interviewed me for, for grad school. So I I applied, and um, and as soon as I visited, I remember going to the open house and seeing the location of Scripps right by the ocean in Southern California, and seeing the surfers, <laughs> you know, the the oceanographers would have surfboards on their offices and would run down the the you know to the beach at the at the end of the day, and I was like, oh yeah, I I definitely want this. <laughs> yeah, that sounds um, like a dream, I would say. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> Uh, that actually also immediately um, takes me to the next question. How would you say that studying not only one area such as engineering, but yeah, really moving around in these disciplinaries and having a really profound understanding of engineering, but also oceanography, by now also policy, how would you say all of that has shaped your, your professional career and especially the understanding of oceans and how you advocate for them? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Or where you where you focus your work, actually. Yeah, it's been really interesting to to meet scientists and and you know different people that work in this space of conservation and climate solutions and climate action, and and see how there are people that are very motivated by the detail, by having a recipe that they follow, by uh, by collecting the data and going really deep. And there's other people that are more, um, you know, horizontal. Maybe they don't go so deep, but they cover a really broad area of understanding. And I, I see myself as a little bit of a mix of the two that I really enjoyed going deep into one area of research and doing a PhD and two postdocs and really like understanding one question at depth. Uh, but then I was missing the breadth of understanding of how does this connect to the rest of the issues, right? How how can we start integrating some systemic thinking into uh, the roots of the problem and also the solutions? So so I, I got to complement, as you said, my engineering and my oceanography backgrounds with public policy recently. And uh, even though I wouldn't claim that I'm an expert in public policy, at least understanding how how things are connected and and how what tools other experts have at hand and how we can bring some tools for them to tackle the problems and how they bring another point of view for us to tackle our problems. Um, Because I I used to be so naive, right, that I thought, well, climate change is is just a technical problem, right? We just have to find the right engineering solution. And we just have to understand climate change uh, at the, you know, at the core in a very scientific way, and then we'll fix it. Uh, But if you disregard all the complexities that come with human societies, right, and how people are motivated by different things and they have different needs and, and seeing the world in a more, um, you know, complex way. Um, and I think that's what, what getting into the world of policy has, has provided for me a little bit of, um, empathy and also a little bit of patience for why Mm -hmm. things move so slow. Mm -hmm. And that, um, I suppose is actually also the summary of, uh, what you, 
I don't know if you actually describe yourself as as a science diplomat, but you definitely use the the term science diplomacy a lot, which is also one of the reasons we bonded immediately over this podcast name. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, we did. And I, I was wondering if you could tell us more about one specific example of what I think is science diplomacy at its core, which is doing your work at the University of Washington, you were analyzing remote sensing data to characterize underwater noise and understand its relationship to environmental changes in the polar ecosystem. And this was translated into policy. And I was wondering if you could tell us how that went about and... Um, Yeah, that's when I started understanding that I I was one of those scientists that also wanted to go beyond just the publication and that maybe academia wasn't the right place for me because I remember, you know, publishing papers and then being frustrated that it would get read by a few other scientist experts um, and it was really difficult for it to get translated into policy. So I became involved with um, a meeting that would happen in Alaska. I was doing research in the Alaskan Arctic um, And I became involved in this uh, meeting that would happen once a year, uh, and it would be organized by the native communities um, in the North Slope of Alaska. Uh, it would involve the industry, um, you know, parties that were interested in uh, exploring for oil and gas in the North Slope, the regulatory agencies, both at the state level and at the national level, at the federal level. Um, and the scientists that were doing research. So it was it was an interesting opportunity for us to present the science that we had done in the last year and for the native communities to basically grant permission because they hold the permission for granting the industry, like the big BPs and shells to do exploratory work. So it was one of those very special places where the local communities would get to assess the science that we were presenting and we had to present it in, you know, very um, simplified ways, but we had to make sure that it was it was also accurate. And, and based on that evidence, they would decide whether they would grant the industry permission for the following year. So uh, that's when I started being really passionate about, it's like, wow, we can, we can really influence. And it doesn't involve just publishing the papers, but also knowing how to translate it then to these other stakeholders um, so that they understand and they realize how, um, you know, how it connects back to their backyard. So, so it was through those meetings that I started really wanting to become more involved in science policy. Uh, first, at just, as I said, just the state level and then more with the federal level. But especially in the Arctic, it's impossible to make decisions that don't touch on other countries, um, for example, Russia, right? So we were doing a lot of work in the Bering Strait and we had collaborators that were from Russia, and we would go into Russian waters every now and then and retrieve some instruments. And I remember one year in particular where the tensions between the two countries were, you know, very difficult, and we were not given the permission to enter Russian waters. So we had to leave those instruments behind. We couldn't go collect them. And it was the first time that I started understanding, wow, like, it's not just state level and federal level. Like, this science has implications on a global scale with two powers like Russia and the US. And, and I thought back to my time at NASA and how I had been there in the year when the space station was first um, inhabited. It was the first year that, uh, 2002, when, when the first expedition of three um, astronauts and cosmonauts got to live in the space station. And, and I was like, wow, there's got to be a name for this thing that I feel that it, there's a connection there. <laughs> and it was through just Googling that I, that I got to the name of science diplomacy. I was like, oh, and it just felt, you know, when you just arrive somewhere and you feel like, oh, I've arrived home. <laughs> it, was that, yeah. it was that sense <laughs> of like, oh, this is the thing that I have been missing. This is what connects the fact that I come from another country, the fact that I speak multiple languages, the fact that I really like doing outreach and that I have an interest in uh, international affairs and and I also have expertise in science. So just like landing into that, those two words mm -hmm. felt like, ah, this is where mm -hmm. I belong. But you did focus for a long time on, on underwater acoustics, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So my research, my, my research uh, for the PhD and for the postdocs was, was underwater sound. And, and it connects back to my engineering. It requires a lot of um, physics, a lot of electrical engineering, for sure, a lot of mechanical engineering. Um, 
but it's also connects back to my desire for exploration, right? Because the ocean is not transparent to light. It doesn't transmit light very well, but it is transparent to sound. You can, you can send waves of sound that at before the industrial era, they could cross a whole uh, ocean basin. Um, so, so it's a, it's a really wonderful tool for understanding and mapping and, and, and seeing quote, quote unquote, uh, the ocean underwater. Yeah, I think that that's a beautiful way to frame it of actually seeing the the ocean by listening to it because you don't see that much. I always find the difference so amazing being underwater during daytime as opposed to evening or or nighttime. It's incredible how loud it is during the day. There have been a couple of initiatives in the last years that highlight how polluted the the ocean is with sound, which is something that is not visible to to humankind and therefore is not really or has not experienced that much attention as as other topics for example and i think we talked about this i'm i'm so sad you didn't get to see that exhibition oceans 21 the seafony it was so amazing it was basically just a dark room and they traveled from antarctica all the way to the arctic through different um Yeah, different oceans, and you had a little guide on your phone where you could follow um, what you're hearing right now from animals to the pollution of sounds. And it was together with light installations. I was like, oh my God, this is just amazing. I was so touched. I cried. I laughed. I was just like, wow. And it's amazing because it really allows people to, I think, connect to the science that um, gets published in papers but it's not understandable to everyone and connect to it in a different way and understand what is happening and understand, okay, maybe things need to change. Yes. And, and like you said, it's a problem that doesn't get seen. You know, it's, it, I, I'm a little bit jealous, quote unquote, uh, with the, with the plastic problem, for example, where they can just show, they can yeah. show the stomach of a bird or the stomach of a whale that's filled with plastic yeah. or a turtle with a straw in her nose. And, and then the, it triggers a lot of um, attention. It triggers a lot of action too. But the problem with, with sound pollution is that we don't think of it as a pollutant, first of all. And um, even though there's so many impacts on human health too, when you think about a city that's really polluted with noise, you can develop yeah. um, headaches, you can develop all sorts of, um, um, of, of problems. Yeah. And, and there's regulations for humans as well, right? So why, why do we think that once again, the ocean is too big for these problems that, that we experience? Uh, just, just like yeah. with the chemical pollution and with the plastic pollution, we think the ocean is big enough to handle them on his own and that we can just disregard our responsibility for it. Yeah. And it's um, sad and actually, um, dangerous too because so many animals as you said in the ocean since you can't see anything they rely on on sound for orientation for finding partners for finding food and etc and i think one of the best ways i've experienced uh understanding this was um at a conference once where an art initiative actually played sound pollution scaled up or like ex exponentially scaled up to how it would feel to humans so the basically it was so loud they gave us earplugs and everything because they said this is the the pain so to say the human level of pain that animals are experiencing due to our sound pollution and there were also politicians sitting in that room etc and i don't know i sometimes i get very pessimistic and frustrated because i didn't really feel like hey that really changes anything for them because they are probably confronted with this on a very frequent level. But speaking of that, you, you did work at the UN as well, <laughs> eventually. Um, so how would you say, um, or would you consider these entities and frameworks to be the best chance we have for creating effective change and for implementing and, and highlighting science diplomacy? Or do you think it needs rapid or it needs something completely different well i think it's one of those like like climate action it's one of those areas in which there's no silver bullet so it's not going to be the un that's going to solve everything but it is one of the key players in the action that's needed right so so i would never say it's the most important i would never say it's least important i'd say it's one of the important ones right um 
it was interesting because the year I was very there, <laughs> it's a very <laughs> diplomatic answer, right? <laughs> I'm applying my science diplomacy background. Um, so I, I think the interesting thing about the year that I was at the UN, I was with a fellowship thanks to the Nippon Foundation for developing countries. Fellows are brought for six months to work at the UN headquarters and then six months abroad in a, in a partner institution. Uh, and during those six months at headquarters, I got to participate in several of the of the meetings. Um, for example, the the preparatory commissions for what is now the BBNJ Treaty, which is actually starting next week. What's that? Um, BBNJ stands for Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdictions, and it's this new treaty towards the high seas having some sort of regulation for how the benefits of its biodiversity are going to get distributed among among everybody. So the high seas are basically belonging to everyone, right? But there's no jurisdiction on them. No one country has jurisdiction over them. So this new treaty is going to hopefully put some order so that um, things like marine protected areas can be created in the high seas and the open ocean. And also for mechanisms for better uh, technology transfer and capacity building, so, so this, uh, going back to uh, the fellowship that I did at the UN in 2018, I got to participate in some of those meetings. And it was interesting because one of the things that happened that year is that the delegations once a year get a seminar. It's like a week-long seminar on a topic about the ocean. And that year in particular, it was about ocean noise. So it was really fun to be a fellow and at the same time an expert in the topic that the delegations were getting schooled in. And and yes, it was definitely something that was very new to the diplomats. It was a problem that they maybe had heard about, but they didn't, they didn't uh, have a dimension of how serious it was or what consequences it could have. And, and watching those scientists that were my colleagues be in the stage and, and, and provide this information in context, right? In context of what are the consequences to ports? What are the consequences to whale watching industry? What are the consequences to native communities that um, have subsistent quotas for hunting some of these whales? So understanding the problem in context was was really fascinating. Um, it was less about the how many decibels and right. It was less about the scientific detail, but more about the context of what impact it has on society and and economies. Um, so I felt that the countries were definitely interested, but at the same time, they the next week they get distracted by some other problem get, that gets thrown their way. So it's hard to see or hard to know how they rank, how these problems rank, which one they're going to tackle first, uh, if they can tackle all of them. Uh, but I have been seeing action happen at a more small scale level. For example, ports are starting to take action because... In the case of shipping, for example, the noise that is irradiated from the propeller is actually a loss of energy. So to the, the companies that run the shipping uh, industry, right, it's to them, it's a loss to be producing all this noise. So it's in their best benefit to create propellers that are actually not having so much cavitation, right? It's, it's, it's a loss of energy for them. So, so there are efforts that can be good for people and good for for nature, right? So, so we have to start finding those solutions, and um, and then not just rely on the UN solving everything, but just being one of the the parties that mm -hmm. can, you know, push the action forward. Yeah, I guess. However, once again, um, or it happens quite a lot. I feel that it just happens to be so that the um, the effect or the action that is also benefiting nature or biodiversity, et cetera, is also more economic. So then it gets implemented immediately. And I find this is like the real trigger, I suppose, or the, the essence of affecting good, yeah, climate change actions is to simply make them more profitable than the, the opposite. Um, Which you would think is automatically... The solution, but if you look at the prices of many alternative energies right now compared to oil and gas, but oil and gas are still getting trillions of dollars in subsidies, right? So exactly the same exactly. thing happens with yes. the ocean. Illegal fishing and fishing in the high seas are still getting a lot of subsidies, uh, and that's what the World Trade Organization has been trying to to create an agreement to eliminate those those really nefarious subsidies uh, that end up hurting us 
in two ways, right? Economically and environmentally. So mm-hmm. uh, you would think that it's just as simple as creating a solution that is cheaper, but but there are yeah. some perverse mm-hmm. incentives in there that are built in and some people yeah. that are benefiting that, that just yeah. lock the system sometimes in a very negative way. Yeah. And unfortunately, there are still things that are always more important. I mean, two examples. Since two years, the UN Ocean Decade is running. And since two years, we have first COVID crisis, then the war in Ukraine, um, besides, of course, course, many other crises in the world, actually. But these two have really, I feel, yeah, put a stop to or or prevented uh, other events and other efforts such as the highly anticipated UN Ocean Decade to really, yeah, to really unfold in in all of its... I do um, want to believe, I don't know, I'm an eternal optimist, but I do want to believe that <laughs> despite those, yes, there's there's lags and there's unpredictable, you know, obstacles that we didn't see coming like COVID. But I do want to believe, and the people that I know that are passionate about these topics didn't stop working because of the pandemic, right? And even maybe the the conference was halted and it was delayed by two years and the flashy stuff in the newspapers didn't happen until this year. But the people that were working day to day that are making things happen didn't stop. And that's what really keeps me motivated that I know that it, at the surface, it seems that there's been a slowdown. Um but I just start seeing more and more people becoming passionate about these topics, understanding that they can get involved from different points of view and from different expertises, that it's not just something that only scientists or only policymakers are going to solve. So I feel like there's, there's a whole like groundswell of other people that are starting to find Mm -hmm. a place in, um, in the environmental movement, um, and adding their talents to mm-hmm. it. So um, yeah. I would say that, yes, there was a delay at the surface level, but I think on the ground level, I think there's still so much action and so much yeah. momentum. I have one other pessimistic example before <laughs> before we get into uh, more optimistic topics. But um, I just remembered reading uh, recently an article, um, and this is also related to ocean acoustics, um, in the north of Germany, they're now building, um, or our green uh, minister of economy is pushing uh, building an LNG terminal in um, in the North Sea. And it's actually, is it the North Sea or the Baltic Sea? I think North Sea. But either way, um, it's actually in front of a bay in which there's a, uh, I don't know the English word for it, actually. In German, it's Schweinswal. So it's a whale and it's this cute whale that looks a little bit like, in, in German, it's the pig whale, um, but it has this pilot, really- Pilot whale? It could, I really have no idea what the what the name is in English. I'll look it up. But um, it uh, they live in this bay and they rely very, very heavily on, um, like all whales, they rely on um, acoustics and sound transmission. And it explained in this article that because of the this new LNG terminal, what- has happened before in the process of building things and the sound pollution that comes with construction sites, et cetera. These whales, they, if, if they don't get out to the open sea early enough, they back into this bay and then they can't get out anymore because their own sounds are just not getting out of the bay. So they're polluted by their own, own sound, which is not escaping into the open sea, um, mixed, of course, with all the other sounds. And then they just go to the bottom of the of the of the sea to the bottom of the bay and just die because they they can't hear anymore they're deaf or they're so stressed by this level of sound and i i was reading this article and i was like wow and this is all known this has been known for, for years but of course the the benefit of now having an lng terminal in germany and the benefits of therefore not importing gas from russia from Qatar instead, but anyways, that is just way more important right now. And I feel like finding that balance, despite effective science diplomacy, diplomacy, despite this being a known result or or, or effect, it's still not as important. I don't know. And I don't know what the right answer to that would be either, if, if the answer should be not to build it or I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So I looked it up. Schweinfall is uh, okay. porpoises. So they're like smaller dolphins. Okay. Um, and, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, I, I had not heard of this particular particular case, uh, but yes, mm-hmm. sometimes the the reverb in an enclosed space or like shallow water for especially for animals that vocalize in high frequencies um, can become too much. So so I can okay. I can imagine how this would be the case. I didn't know that one of the behaviors that it could trigger is that they would stop breathing, right? They were like because generally when when marine mammals are in stress, uh, they run to the surface. That's actually their mechanism of defense is to be close to the the source okay. of oxygen or the source of air. So I had not heard of that behavior of them diving. Um, but, but I, yeah, like more generally, I think it's one of those examples of um, picking the, you know, the, the least, <laughs> the least damaging um, of, of two, horrendous environmental mm. impacts and and we see that for example more more commonly for example with electric cars right people mm-hmm. that defend electric cars because they take away co2 from the atmosphere and people that say well it has all these other minerals that have to be extracted from mines that are used using slavery in or africa or the bottom right? of the sea or the bottom of the um. sea right so so it's one of those we're, we're getting to the point in our planetary consumption that that nothing that we do is going to be entirely um, consequence free. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, the, the science of attribution is becoming better and better. And we're starting to understand. Uh, What do you mean with signs of attribution? Uh, that we can we can attribute to one action uh, a line of mm-hmm. the consequences downstream. Right. Okay. So, so we're starting to to be able to also create the idea of certifications, for example, that allow consumers to be more informed um, and to at least have some transparency about the impact that they generate. And and that's what I was thinking about attribution, right? We start seeing the 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 whole chain of events uh, when you buy coffee that comes from Costa Rica, then you start understanding. You, and you can compare which one is worse than another. And hmm. and I don't know the solution to this particular case, but but I think we, I, I really connected. I don't know if you saw this show called The Good Place. Um, no. You didn't watch it. So it was, it was really poetic because these people arrive to heaven and there's a, an accountant there that was doing the numbers on your life and deciding whether you would go into heaven or you would go into hell, right? And and the the problem had been that the the supply chains on earth and like everything had become so complex that it wasn't as easy as oh you buy a tomato and you know that gives you positive points because it's good for your health, but that tomato had been grown by stealing water from Mexico, right? Like a farm that had used uh, um, a well or had, mm. you know, like blocked the river and had created all these consequences in a developing country. And then there had been slavery involved, some, something like that, right? So the person ended up having a bunch of negative points and going mm. to hell, not going to heaven. And and I think we're starting to get to the point in, in, in humanity that it becomes really difficult to know what you can do as an individual and even as a group of people um, to make better decisions. And, and this was a perfect example of, yeah, Germany as a country, of mm. course, needs to become independent of uh, energy independent from, from Russia uh, because it puts us in a very, us, because I'm living in Germany, but <laughs> it puts the country in a very, in a very geopolitical, mm-hmm. fragile position. Um, but then should the porpoises be paying for the price of that? Or how can you how can you create a solution? Exactly. That, yeah. yeah, it's exactly what you mentioned in the beginning, explaining why um, or what you learned during your time in the UN and your time in science diplomacy, because it shows you it's just not black and white. Everything is so interconnected, both on a social and on a geopolitical, on an economic level. It's not like okay, these um, what was the name? Purposes. Por- Purposes. Yeah. <laughs> Purposes are dying, so we cannot do this. I understand most of the most of the sides usually. And actually, you you mentioned something earlier when you were talking about the BDNJ treaty that it'll help technology transfer and capacity building on the high seas. And I wanted to follow up on what you mean with that exactly. So, how is that treaty going to facilitate technology transfer and, and capacity building? 
Well, it's going to have a framework, and and to to be honest, I haven't read the most recent version of the of the treaty text, so I don't know exactly if they are putting examples or you know narrowing down on the the mechanisms that will facilitate that. But in general, it's just so that technologies that become developed, for example, for ports and infrastructure on coastlines to allow the, the, um, the fishing fleets for countries to be more efficient and to not create as much damage in the arts of fishing, for example, for, for that technology to be transferred and, and to have a way of, of arriving at developing countries. For example, right now, only about seven or eight countries fish regularly in the high seas or, or account for most of the fishing that happens in the high seas. And it's because it's these big countries that have huge fleets that have the capacity of going over 200 nautical miles outside there, right? So it's not just every country that has boats and, and, and shipping ports that can handle the kind of boats that can go into the open ocean. So so we just want to make sure that if there is development in a positive way, that that can get transferred to uh, and, and distribute it um, among among everybody so that everybody has equal access to the high seas, not not just the big powerful countries that are. And as soon as that gets like regulated, right, um, it can also be used for defending marine protected areas, for example. So if we could create marine protected areas in the high seas, then these patrolling vessels are not just going to be coming from the seven countries that can get out there. They're going to come also from other countries that are small and that want to protect, right? And then there's better oversight mm. coming from, from mm. and transparency coming from all the, all, all the countries. Okay, so because right now in the high seas, there is no jurisdiction. So basically when, say, a vessel from, I don't know, the US, a vessel from China, from Russia are out there first. They simply defend that by saying we were here first, but it's not because they have a, a right to that. Or, or what is the, um, I still don't quite understand how um, the, the treaty, I mean, you said you haven't read it yet, but the latest version of it, but how that is going to guarantee smaller uh, states or development states to, to have access to that as well. Is it because it defines everybody can have access to this, whereas right now it just doesn't say that? Well, that, that was already defined in the law of the sea. So the law of the sea is like the bigger umbrella in, in international law that that creates like a constitution for the ocean. And the law of the sea already um, allows freedom of navigation in the high seas, uh, freedom of fishing as well. So every country has access to fishing in the high seas. It's a free for all. But then it's limited by which countries have the biggest capacity to actually go out there and bring the catch. So right now, the, the high seas are a little bit like a Wild West where there is a regulation. But basically, that regulation says everybody has access to this. <laughs> so another one of the, of the parts of the BBNJ treaty is marine resources, marine genetic resources. And what that one's going to do is that if there is an urchin collected from the bottom of the sea in the high seas, currently the country that extracts it, and if they find, um, you know, it has a toxin that cures cancer, they can privatize that benefit. So Germany is actually right now the one that has the most patents for marine genetic resources from the high seas. And that urchin originally belonged to all of humanity, right? So so now this treaty is going to distribute the benefits and it's going to mandate that if that becomes privatized, that that benefit has to be then distributed with all the other countries that originally owned the urchin as well. Okay, I see. Well, that's cool. Wow. And that is together with the, the deep sea mining um, uh, negotiation that's also going on in, in Jamaica right now, which is going to tackle uh, what is called the area, which is the bottom of the sea in the high seas. And there's a lot of interest, like we said, because of electric cars, because of photovoltaic battery capacity, you know, like all of these things that those those minerals can really enable, which are generally positive, but are going to have an impact and are going to disturb an ecosystem that we don't understand a lot about. So, so that those two treaties together are going to basically define what half of the of the planet, like 45 percent of the planet that is high seas what the future is for for the international waters. 
Wow, that's really, really cool. I didn't know they were, well, first of all, I didn't know they were happening right now um, or being negotiated right now and that they were so interacted. Deep sea mining is such a uh, hot topic and also so interesting. So for those who don't know, basically what happens in deep sea mining is we go down to the bottom of the ocean where these huge fields of Mangane, is it mangane? Uh, mangan? Manganese. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, balls are lying that have a lot of minerals and that are needed for, as you said, batteries mostly. The technology we use for that are essentially giant um, robots that stir up the whole ground with no respect or no care for, for the ecosystem whatsoever. It's incredibly loud, as we talked about sound pollution. It's not really clear, I think, what other toxins or chemicals are set free from extracting all of those minerals. And it's also not known how exactly the biodiversity and the ecosystem working at the bottom of the sea, like biologic compounds are working and how that will be impacted. And I remember I once read that actually already 40 years ago, when that whole deep sea mining industry started, there were testing sites where they extracted this to see how fast the ecosystem regenerates and rebuilds. And of course, it simply doesn't. It just leaves behind a vast area of looks like a war site, basically, that is still up to date, not in any way repopulated. And it's a very, very controversial practice. Yeah. Yeah. Activity and also um, at the same time, a huge industry for people like me, for example, who work in marine robotics. It's like that's where the money is. Very controversial. Um, and another one of the impacts yeah. that I think you you hinted to, um, but should be made explicit because I think it's important to understand the connections um, between the issues and the solutions, is that we don't know how it's going to disturb the capacity of the deep sea for storing carbon, right? So mm, yeah. because of the because of the pump of carbon that happens between the atmosphere and the ocean, right? The deep sea is one of the places where a lot of carbon, a lot of biomass goes to die, right? So everything that rains down from the surface of the ocean down to the bottom uh, becomes sequestered in in the form of carbon that is stored there. So if we start disturbing that ecosystem that we don't quite understand, uh, we haven't exactly measured how much carbon is stored in there, at the same time that we're pumping more CO2 into the atmosphere, it's like we're shooting ourselves in the foot doubly. <laughs> we're disturbing the atmosphere with the with the intake and we're disturbing the bottom of the ocean with that's supposed to to uh, to be a sink. So And at the same time promoting more and more activities on ocean-based carbon capturing that are trying to actually increase the carbon we want to store down there at the bottom of, of the sea. And of course, in one form in biomass, but also actually the soil, the ocean floor, I believe has stored the most carbon, of course. But that is carbon that we can't just quickly replace or put back down there with our carbon capturing methods, because this is the carbon that has been there for millions and billions of years. And yeah, very interesting point. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I have a couple of more questions <laughs> actually about uh, your, your current work, because We covered your academic work, we covered your policy work, and now you are working in the private industry. I'm not sure how much you're able to to talk about it, but why is it also important and exciting to to do the work that you're now doing? Yeah, definitely. I can I can definitely talk about this, and it's uh, very exciting. And it complements, I think, I, I want to believe that I'm becoming more well-rounded because, as you said, I had worked in academia, I had worked in, in the public sphere, in the public sector, um, I also, as part of the time when I was doing more uh, science policy, I was a negotiator for Costa Rica at the COP. So I got to accompany the delegation of um, of amazing Costa Ricans that were attending this um, this forum to make decisions based on um, what was set on, in the Paris Agreement. And during those those years that I was at the COP, I realized that. A, I was super afraid of, I, I felt like the private sector was a black box that I didn't understand. And I had this stereotype that they were just motivated by money and that, you know, that unless climate change was profitable, they were not going to get involved. And it was during those those COPs that I realized, wow, it's, it's really interesting that the countries can put the goalpost of this is the direction where we're going. 
but it is going to take the finance and the private sector to be the ones that get us there. So I really, I really need to fill this empty hole that I have about understanding the private sector. So I need, I needed to find the right private sector company that, that I, where I would fit in. And, and I feel like I found it in this company called Planet, uh, where I work now. Um, I had heard about them for a long time because they did something incredible. They are imaging the entire world once a day. Um, we have 240 satellites and we take pictures of the entire landmass and some parts of the ocean uh, once a day in three meters. So we create a whole archive of 25 terabytes of data every day with images of the entire planet. And I am the director of science strategy. And as such, I get to interact with the scientific community and with the scientists in decision-making as well, specifically in Europe and Africa and the Middle East. And just get to talk to scientists that are using this imagery and, and remote sensing data for understanding the planet and you know, finding solutions from forest fires to blue carbon mapping, biodiversity, and just fascinating research in so many different areas. And, and I think it complements, again, that uh, desire to see the planet in a more complex and systemic way. And, and even though I don't get to do as much ocean research in particular, there's still a lot of applications for coastal ecosystems, but I'm expanding into understanding first how other ecosystems are affected and what change is happening to them. And, and we really believe that by visualizing and making uh, or providing transparency to what happens on the earth, then we can start at least agreeing on what the problems are and what the solutions can be. Yeah. And I, I mean, you are combining space and ocean and diplomacy. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I would say very well-rounded. Um, <laughs> one thing you didn't mention, but I believe is also a characteristic of the company is that it made a technology that was some decades ago, even maybe years ago, still very expensive into a very economic and affordable technology. And one of the things that came up in all of my episodes so far, talking about different aspects of, of ocean conservation, of carbon capturing, of diplomacy, etc., is always this element of we need to make the technology more accessible, more affordable, because ocean-based technology is still so, so, so expensive. Do you think Or would you say that, um, yeah, what as, an, as a closing question, what as marine engineers or marine entrepreneurs, marine uh, people who are working in the marine uh, sphere can, can learn from that and can, can, yeah, can take away from it? That's really interesting. Yeah, I think uh, space and especially low Earth orbit are seeing this new renaissance of the space race, right? And it's not just about the billionaires that are going and visiting and, and spending their billions doing that, but it's actually the bigger story. And the more important story is what the perspective and the power that we get when we get to see what we're doing and what others are doing to the one living home that we have, right? As soon as, as we start feeling like we are connected to the impacts that happen to the rainforest and the Amazon and the wars that happen in Ukraine and the pollution that happens in the North Sea, we start caring about it because we start, I think that, that overview effect that astronauts report, right? Of like suddenly feeling like, wow, like everything I've ever experienced, every, everybody that I've ever known, it's all contained in that little ball, right? And, and I think satellites provide a little bit of that sensation of like, wow, like I can actually see trees and I can see homes in these images, right? I can see my own house. I can see my office. I can see the streets that I travel. And, and you start seeing that in the context of how it's connected to everything else. So so yeah, so so in space uh, with these cheaper satellites, we're starting to be able to provide that transparency to decision makers, transparency to the scientists, and in really high cadence, right? Like once a day. So you cannot run away from saying, oh, that wasn't me, because you're going to be able to see the change from, you know, just a few hours ago to now. And in the case of oceans, what still needs to happen, I think, is it needs to become something profitable. I think... In the case of space, we see it as profitable uh, and there's a whole economy based on it. 
with oceans, again, because of this long tradition of thinking that the ocean was too big to fail, that the ocean was too big to like take care of itself and that everybody had access. So I might as well just go and take the biggest part before others come and take it away. You know, oceans, unfortunately, still are not seen as a source of wealth. They are seen as 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 something that we have to go and take away from, but not something that we owe any responsibility to. Um, so hopefully in, in terms of uh, marine engineering and marine robotics and marine science, we still rely a lot on international cooperation. We still depend, uh, especially smaller countries like my own, depend on ships, for example, or yeah, big equipment, scientific equipment to be able to understand our own oceans so, so that we can get to those negotiation tables and defend the part of the ocean that belongs to us, plus the ocean that belongs to everybody in a, in a more informed way. In the case of space, I think a lot of the tools that are developed are great for ocean monitoring. The big swaths of the ocean are never going to get monitored by having more ships or more patrols or more Coast Guard, right? You're going to have to rely on something that's more automated. So the combination of machine learning, the combination of AI, together with imagery, for example, like the one that Planet provides, and other kinds of sensors, um, for example, other satellites like MODIS and satellites like Sentinel complement other frequency bands that imagery doesn't have that can tell you about um, blooms of plankton, that can tell you about changes in, in the currents. So it's a really exciting time, I think, for Earth observation and ocean science to complement each other. You can really answer super large-scale problems, both in time and in space. And, and with the big you know, changes that the ocean is undergoing right now because of climate change, you really need to start seeing things as interconnected. And, and I think Earth observation uh, and satellites are a great yeah. tool for, for studying that. Great a lot of amazing points you made there i think because i f f for like early on in in my career not my career my career is very short but like early on in my time or interest for ocean engineering etc i always came across these projects or research groups that are actually space research groups but then also do ocean stuff and i never really understood why um and it's starting to make a lot more sense to me now And I think it's it's great because, of course, the space has gotten so much more attention. We know so much more about space than, than oceans. Unfortunately, I feel like in space, there's a lot of noise that is really diverting from amazing projects such as the one you just talked about, where, yes, of course, companies like SpaceX have contributed probably largely to making that um, technology more affordable and not only concentrating it at NASA or at the European Space Agency, but really moving it towards the private sector, as you say. But yeah, there's, I feel like there's some kind of, um, or there's a lot of bad feelings towards this billionaire space economy and tourism, blah, blah, that just, it's just not, it's just diverting from what should get attention, which is these great developments. It's amazing that we have it because it will benefit to, as you said, all the, the applications and um, opportunities we need for, for monitoring the ocean and monitoring climate change as a... And I think ultimately there's, there's such an inspirational message uh, because I don't know if it's that NASA did a really good marketing job, but you know how little kids all want to be astronauts, right? I, I hope that someday yeah. as many kids aspire to being aquanauts and oceanographers, right? And, and feel mm -hmm. the same sense of like mystery and awe that they feel about space, um, about about oceans and, and see the connection between the old stories of the explorers, right, that, that embarked into these unknown missions to go see the, the yeah. ocean and, and start, you know, go back to that instead of thinking that you have to leave the planet to find that sense of that sense of marvel. Yeah. yeah. When I tell people that one of my biggest dreams is to dive down to, I don't know, even if it's just 400 meters or 2000 meters in a fruit submarine or something, they're like, what? 
but why? Um, whereas if someone told you, I want to be an astronaut and go to space, it's like, yeah, totally. I get it. <laughs> so with that, I, I will close with my three closing questions that I always ask everybody, but um, <gasps> yeah, maybe. <laughs> so the first one is what makes you so angry and desperate that you just want to throw everything aboard and quit? Wow. What makes me angry? I don't think I've I don't think I have ever felt so, you know, lacking hope that I have thrown everything over, overboard and quit. Um, but I couldn't. Have you thought about it? Huh. Like, Ooh. did you get close? That's a difficult question. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about this one. Um, I think I, I okay. No, I, I do think there was one one time when I was at a job where I felt uninspired my by my supervisor. Like I didn't get signals from my supervisor that my job mattered and that my work made a difference. And and I knew I didn't want to be there. So um, that's one of the biggest differences that I have now. Like I, I work with somebody who constantly encourages and reminds me that there's progress and I feel a sense of, um, of, of advancing and making a difference. And I think that's, that's huge. I think that's a great point also regarding how we can make sure the private sector will, will work more towards um, solving problems in the climate crisis, because so many more people care about that and feel like they want to know their work matters. Um, so, and I think especially the, the, new generation the mm -hmm. gen z or whatever which one we're, we're on uh, they they don't just have an extrinsic motivation that they want to get paid more but they also mm -hmm. want to fuel that intrinsic motivation of of knowing that they do something that's that's yeah. important yeah. and that that makes a difference yeah so that was actually my second question um what keeps you going i, I suppose it's kind of answered by that so the last question is, if you had to choose a completely different occupation within the ocean world, what would it be and why? Which is difficult for you because you don't really have like a specific <laughs> occupation. But if it wasn't, for example, yeah, acoustic I, science or yeah. oceanography, what would it be? I been? have always, and, and I think going to Antarctica on the program that we're both part of, Homeward Bound, was a part of that. I have always wanted to be a, uh, an Antarctic diver. I've always wanted to go see under the ice um, and dive mm -hmm. and dive under the ice. So any kind of research that would allow me to, to do that, I, I think that's the other career I would have done. I think I, I've been waiting for that answer, for somebody to say that answer, because <laughs> I'm the same. I keep seeing those pictures and I'm like, oh, yeah. I have, a, I have a friend who's done it and it's really fascinating to hear how you have to be tethered to the hole, mm -hmm. right? So that you don't lose track of where mm -hmm. um, the exit <laughs> the exit is. And I did some diving under ships and just to practice being in an enclosed space mm -hmm. where the top is covered, right? Mm -hmm. And it's such a weird feeling of being claustrophobic, right? You know that you cannot just mm -hmm. shoot up to the surface because there's something blocking. So... Mm -hmm. So I think it would definitely be a little bit freaky to dive under mm -hmm. ice, but just the the kind of visibility and the light that permeates mm -hmm. through the ice, the pictures I have seen and the stories I've heard just, just make it sound mm -hmm. fascinating. I agree. Yeah. Uh, with that, I think we're done. <laughs> Unless, I hope I did um, well. I hope you I did, did well. very well. No, it's, it was <laughs> it was amazing. I in the beginning or when I was um, typing up my questions. I was thinking, ah, this is not as um, straightforward as other um, interviews I've had because you've done so many different things. And I wanted to make sure that, that there was like a red, red line through it all. Um, and at some point I thought maybe I just won't write down any questions and just talk with you like we did the first time. <laughs> But that's, um, very, that's very risky. It's very risky and eventually I I mean I had that option in my in my notes, but I, I think it was it was great. Um, Perfect. Yeah. Good. No, it was super good. Really, really interesting and exciting. And um I'm really uh curious also to see where um yeah, what what you'll do with planet and so um yeah. Thank you. Yes. No, I'm really I'm really excited and more and more we're getting um we're getting requests and we're hearing from scientists that are applying our data for ocean 
and coastal applications. Um, mm. We we just upgraded the, the the satellites in May or March, no, in March, um, to have an, uh, a few extra frequency bands. And these spectral bands are really good for bathymetry mapping and for coastal processes and, and also for lakes. So uh, we're really exciting to start seeing more and more science coming out uh, and publications coming out uh, from from the research community that uses this for for the Wait, so you can actually um, measure bathymetry with that? Um, yes, you can see you can see bathymetry, uh, and wow. it has to be like relatively clear water, so yeah. close to the shore, but yeah. But yeah, cool. one one really cool application that you know, if the listeners are interested in exploring more, is called the Allen Coral Atlas, and okay. it's the mapping of old coral reefs uh, around the world. And what it did is it used multiple sources of data, but uh, it basically used planet imagery as the base map, and on top of that, they put other. Um, you know, even like underwater benthic mapping that they did. Um, but it's a, it's a really cool way of visualizing and, and seeing because you can see from day to day the damage on the reefs. You can start finding the indications of bleaching events. Um, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, cool. so people can go to Allen Coral Atlas and, and see a little bit of the application of, of planet to, mm -hmm. um, to ocean science. I'll put that. I'll put that in the show notes. Perfect. <laughs> I've always wanted to say that sentence. <laughs> in the show notes. I actually haven't done show notes yet. It's too much work. Um, at some point, maybe. Um, but <laughs> well, hopefully this will cool. be the first episode. That yes, exactly. <laughs> um, maybe you can send me the link. Um, uh, is it yeah. Alan? Like um, A A L L E N. Yeah. Okay. Good. Awesome. Um, Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm You're very welcome. Happy we we have made it. Um, and. Thank Have you so a wonderful much. weekend. You too. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Bye. Bye.